welcome you to Doxodeo Hatfield, a multi-ethnic family on mission, passionate about Jesus, passionate about community, and passionate about serving the city of Chwane. Good morning. My name is Joe, and I'm part of the leadership team here at Dr. Hatfield. It's really great to have you with us. And maybe I can ask you to open up a Bible with me, whether it's on your phone or in your hand or wherever you have it, to the book of John. So John in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, chapter 4, verse 4. And just to remind us, the story goes that John was this, this battle-scarred, aged Christian. And for 50 years, he had been sharing who this Jesus is with so many thousands of people that by the end of his life, he came to the point where he said, I want to. And he was carried along by the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit to do this. I want to write down who this man is. I want a record of his life. And the heart behind it was not only to introduce new people to Jesus, but to strengthen those who had already put their faith in Jesus. And so he penned this book that we call the book of John, the good news according to John. And at the end of this book, he says, this is the heart behind it. He summarizes it in John 20, verse 31, when he says, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so often when people read the book of John, Christians will say something like, it almost feels like I'm meeting Jesus again for the first time, it has this power to not only introduce people to Jesus, but to reintroduce people to Jesus. And this is what he says it's all about, that you would in this man, Jesus Christ, not experience just religion or rules or some new way of living, but that you would experience life itself. He invites you to come and experience life. And that's why the evangelistic call of the early church was not this is the gospel. This is the truth. They simply just said this, come and see. Come and see this man. Come and understand and experience for yourself. And this is Christianity, friends, to know Jesus and to make Jesus known. That's all of it. And so I want to invite you as we preach through the book of John over these next couple of weeks, I want to invite you to come and reintroduce yourself and be reintroduced just to be awed again, just to be floored by who he is again, just to stand in a place of amazement as to who Jesus is again and ask him to form something in your heart of someone who simply introduces others to Jesus. And I'll remind you that over these nine weeks, we're also doing something of a resource that we're asking our community groups to wrestle through every Tuesday morning, speaking about these three values. How do I become someone who is a witness to who Jesus is? And we're saying it's simply these three values that you would daily and weekly and, and yearly, every season of life, that you would grow in love with Jesus, that you would come to the place where you understand your design in Jesus. How has he put me together, my temperament, my background, my personality, the people that I work with, my sphere of influence? How does he want to use me? And then simply this third thing, that I would just begin to introduce others to Jesus. So we're going to read and go further. John 4, verse 4, read with me. It says, Jesus had to travel through Samaria. And so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, verse 6. 
And Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, he sat down at the well, and it was about noon, midday. Now, a bit of context, Jesus could have taken, as he's on his way, any of three different routes. Only one of them is through this area, and that he goes into this Samaritan grouping of people. And that doesn't sound very controversial, but in his time, it was extremely controversial. Why? Because the Jews hated the Samaritans and vice versa. I mean, the EFF and the DA, they've got nothing on the Jews and the Samaritans when they're looking at one another. These guys had deep, deep, and long mixed hatred for one another. And part of the reason was the Jews believed that Samaritans were a mixed race of people. They were kind of half Jewish, half, you know, pagan, and they had actually established their own worship site, their own temple on this mountain called Gerizim. And they were saying that that is the place, the only place where you can worship God and know God, commune with God. So you Jewish people, you are missing the plot. So there was an extreme hatred between these two races of people. And so there were lots of strict Jewish cultural laws, not from the Bible, but in their own makeup that said that you are not allowed at all to mix with Samaritan people on a romantic or sexual basis. That's not allowed. In fact, you are not even allowed to eat the bread if you're a Jewish person that was made by a Samaritan. There was an old Jewish saying that went, he who eats a Samaritan's bread is as he who eats swine's flesh. Um, all the people who like good pizza say that about debonairs. You're eating something that's substandard from what you should be eating, right? And that's what they were saying. In fact, if people wanted to, hey, I'm a debonaise guy, so don't feel offended. Um, some people even, if they, wanted to, if they wanted to say something mean to Jesus, they wanted to be like, brew, you're such a chop. If they wanted to say that to him, what did they actually call him? John 8, 48, they called him a Samaritan. So, I mean, you know that people hate you if they use your people group as an insult, they're like, you're such a South African, and everyone's like, oh, that was rough. That's what it was. So why would Jesus do this? Why would he take this path of all paths as a Jewish man? And the reason is because he had such a meeting with this lady. He had such a predefined uh, goal. He had a divine appointment to speak to her. And so in verse 7, it says, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Now, let's read further. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because the disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, she asks, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and what he is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. So Jesus just starts with what's around him. Very simple. The conversation, just listen, we are here at this well. We're speaking about water, but I actually want to speak to you about eternal water, living water, supernatural water. And Jesus was in effect saying to her that you are ignorant in this phase of your life of three things. You're ignorant as to who I am, what it is that I can actually offer you, and how you can actually receive it today. So it goes on. Read with me. Verse 11, it says, Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket, and the well is deep, so where do you get this living water? Verse 13, Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water that I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. 
So the woman said, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty again and have to come here to draw water. So more than 36 times, Jesus in this passage speaks about this one concept of life. He's trying to get to the place where she realizes her deepest need is not a new phase of life, not reinventing herself. It's not trying harder or being better. She actually is a need of life itself. But because there's this constant confusion between the two of them, the more he wants to speak about the deep issues of life and living water, she keeps going back to H2O. Like, yes, I get it. Where's the water? Give me the water. I will drink the water. And Jesus is like, come on, we're missing one another here. So what does he do? He changes his tactics. Verse 16. He says, okay, go and call your husband. He told her. And come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said that you don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you have had five husbands. And the man that you now have is not your husband. So what you've said is true. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. And then she goes on this whole theological rant. And what's happening here? If there were a moment, if you were writing the score, the musical score for the scene, when he said, I know that you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands. That would have been the da, 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 kind of moment in this conversation because Jesus realizes we're missing each other in this whole water metaphor. So what does he do? He goes straight to the most broken aspect of this woman's life, the deepest hurt that she experiences. Jesus knows that. He senses that. He can see that. And he speaks right into that. And so what does she do? The shortest answer she gives in this whole discussion is this. I have no husband. Why? Because conviction is starting to set into this lady's heart. She does exactly what you and I do whenever we are confronted. You maybe sit with someone and you speak about faith or religion or the deeper issues of life. Maybe you sit in church. Maybe you're reading. Maybe you are confronted with some truth. And what do we do when that happens? When it gets really personal, when it gets right up in your face? Not just the Sunday school answers, but the stuff that really hits you deep in your heart. What do we do? We change the subject. We sidestep it. We go around. So what does she do? She goes to some theological discussion about where we are to worship. So she's like, yeah, anyway, you're a prophet. You know, what about the Jews? You know, it's, like a, it's almost like a weather comment. You know, this weather this last week. You know, anyway, this five husband thing. What about the weather? You know, that. What about, you know, what's happening on News 24, Ukraine? That's, let's speak about that. How often does that happen with us? God is trying to speak to your heart through someone, and we change the subject. He said, oh, but, you know, what about Christians, uh, you know, that are, that are messing up their testimony? What about people that have never heard about Jesus? What's going to happen with them? What about homosexuality? Yeah, what about that? What about abortion? Come on. And I'm saying those are all great questions, but that's not what God is trying to do right in this moment with her heart or maybe your heart. He's speaking right to where the deeper sore is. Friends, we're never going to get anywhere with Jesus until we allow him to ask the deepest questions of your heart. If you come here every Sunday hoping just to be inspired, to be intrigued, and you walk over, it's like, yeah, that was, that was helpful. Friends, we're never going to get anywhere. Jesus wants to lay you flat on the gurney, cut you open, and he wants to give you life. He doesn't want you to be inspired. He wants you to be transformed. So he wants to ask you questions like, where are you actually going in life at the moment? He wants to ask you, what is the thing that genuinely is the basis and foundation of your life? Why are you not truly happy? Jesus says, forget Ukraine for a moment. Let's speak about you. So what happens? Suddenly it all makes sense. This whole water analogy suddenly hits this lady. 
And what happens? He says to her, listen, as you have come daily to this well to come and draw water and you use it and you are thirsty again, I want you to see what I see. And that is that you have been all throughout your life going to the well of sex and intimacy. And you have been drawing and you've been drawing and you have thirsted once again. It's never satisfied. And so what's been happening? You've been going from, from one marriage to the next. As I go from one bed to the next, there's a trust that now I will be satisfied. Now I will experience something of a sense of, of identity, of comfort, of acceptance, of love, that I'm not just known, but I'm known and loved by someone. And what happens? In the short run, just like the natural water, I'm satisfied. I feel whole. And the next morning, the next day, the next month, suddenly it no longer works. This marriage that would have made me whole is no longer the thing that's actually sustaining me. So I go to the next one. And once again, it feels like, man, new city, new season of life, new car, new job, new salary bracket. Man, God is good. Things are working in my life. And then suddenly it's no longer satisfying. Suddenly the person that was so beautiful that you were pursuing, standing to your right, you're so bored with that person. And I go from one marriage to the next, to the next, to the next, and eventually she just gives up on the whole institution of marriage. She's actually being shown by Jesus that you have not just natural thirst, you have a soul thirst. And no amount of sex or intimacy will ever be able to fill that. So Lynn, it says here in verse 25, read with me. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. She's coming off of her theological rant here. I know that the Messiah who's called Christ, he is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. In fact, Jesus actually quotes here this, this moment that, that God appears to Moses in the Old Testament. And he uses the name that Jewish people are never meant to use. I am. He says to her, the one that you are looking for, the one that you are speaking to, I am. And just then his disciples arrived. You can imagine. And they were amazed that he was talking with a woman, friends. This was a very different time. Yet no one said, what do you want? Or why are you talking with them? And in that moment, the penny just drops. And this, this woman left her water jar and she went into town and she told the people. And if you read further there, you'll see that phrase of our series coming up again. She tells the people, come and see the one who knew everything about my life. Come and see. And in the end, Jesus spends time with these Samaritan people, and they come to the place where they say, listen, we don't now simply believe because of what she has said. We believe because we have seen him. We have experienced him. Friends, that's what we want when we speak about this. Not that you would be Jesus in the streets, but that you would be a mirror reflecting to people who he is. And that they would say not, you know, I'm in this marriage, and my wife is a strong Christian, and I'm just like a plus one. So I believe because of my wife, or I believe because of my parents. I'm dragged, sorry for all those young people that got dragged here today, but I'm dragged to the church. Or, you know, I, I grew up in a Christian home, so I know that's why I believe. We are a Christian nation, something like that. I got baptized as an infant. No, they say, no, I no longer believe because of any of that. I believe because I have experienced Jesus. Friends, can I just maybe on behalf of all of us say that I see so much of this woman's story in my own life. So much. Here's someone who says, I have gone looking for the wells that this life can offer, and I've come up so empty and dissatisfied. Friends, sex and intimacy and the brokenness that goes with that as the foundation of your life, 
I know what that is like. I have had pornography as an addiction throughout the younger parts of my life, and it absolutely ruined me. It twisted my mind and my thoughts around the opposite sex. It told me that people are things to be used for your pleasure, to to manage your frustrations, to try and regulate your emotions. Here's someone who says, listen, I have gone down the wells and I've not found life. I think so many of us here, people in our city, friends, neighbors, colleagues, family members are desperately trying to get satisfaction and wholeness from the place of sex and intimacy. It's not working. So what does Jesus say about sex and intimacy? Two things I think he says here today. The first is this. He says sex and intimacy are good things, but not God things. Sex and intimacy is a good thing, but not a God thing. Can I tell you that our culture has three ways of looking at sex and intimacy? The first is that sex is God. I don't think any any culture has perfected this as we have in 2022 where sex is so central to your humanness that if someone were to keep you from expressing and experiencing the sexual pleasure and expression that you want, they are violating you as a person. It is me as an individual, and I decide and I express, and I need and I need. And if that is not something I can do, then something has gone wrong in our society. And so we say that sexual pleasure and sexual pursuit is so crucial to my self-expression and identity That this is the primary way that I come to the place of of experiencing pleasure and identity and wholeness. There is no higher pleasure, no greater good, nothing greater to pursue than sexual intimacy. It's God. I remember a couple of years ago reading this article where they had an interview with Cameron Diaz, the actor, or the actress. And she said that for her, she's come to the place where she realizes in her worldview that sexual pleasure is the highest good she can give herself to. But she's realized that if she sticks around in any relationship for more than five years, there's something of a boredom that sets in. And so she said that she has gotten to this place where every five years she basically relocates in the U.S. and she finds a new partner and the excitement is back and now I know that we are moving forward. And so every five years I need to move on to the next person and the next person and the next person. And this is said is like, yes, this, you know, I've discovered this enlightened way of living. A new, a new plaything, a new toy, a new person, a new warm body next to me. This is how I want to live. Sex is God. You know that a couple of years ago, Playboy magazine, which was like, it was a thing for older people. This was like the, this was like the stuff that you had to go and find like in some dodgy looking uh, shop on the corner in like a paper bag. That's how our grandparents grew up. They actually, for a couple of years, committed to no longer showing nudes in their magazine because pornography had become so big and so accessible that Playboy was going out of business in the business that they had basically pioneered. Why would I want to buy a magazine if I can just find a harem of unlimited nudity on the internet on my phone? And so they came to the place where they said, our business model, which is sexuality, is not working anymore because the world is too sexual. You know that the pornography industry in the world is bigger than movies, books, and music put together in income. So people are like, wow, you know, Endgame won, was a $2 billion. It's like, that's nothing compared to pornography. Sex is God. But maybe other ways of seeing this, and this is unfortunately often in very fundamentalist Christian circles. Sex is not God. 
Sex is gross. <laughs> sex is gross. We don't speak about it. We don't think about it. And if you ever are in a marriage and you do it, you don't enjoy it. That's the only way. You can, you know, if we have to, we will. But it's like Donnie, my, my, uh, my leader in Bloom, he would say, in the church that he grew up in, you are not allowed to dance. But if you dance, you just don't enjoy it. So that's almost how we think about sex in the church sometimes. Sex is sinful, it's dirty, it's this thing, and, you know, it's just there to procreate and to make more humans. That's why we have this sex thing. I remember one of my friends saying that his grandparents, in the generation they grew up in, the, the greatest generation, he says that his grandparents, they had never even seen each other naked yet by the time they had died. You just had, you had kids, but you did it in such a way that we miss each other. Like, I see all the young people like, how? How does this work? Because that was the culture. Sex is this taboo thing. I remember this one pastor was saying he was on a camp, and man, I've had experiences like this in Christian circles where he says this preacher is like firingly speaking to the young people, and you like this, this degenerate generation, and he says to them, sex is dirty and nasty and vile and wrong, so save it for the one that you love, right? Isn't that how the message in the church often ends up? Man, sex is bad. So don't do it until you're married. But friends, I want to say the Bible has such a profound view on sex. It says, no, sex is not God. And it's not gross. Sex is good. It's the good gift of God. I'm making the young men blush in the front here. What's happening, guys? <laughs> you see, I think often we think that the Bible has somehow this disapproving view of sexuality and intimacy. As though it's something that we discovered behind God's back, right? At the end of the seventh day, he was like making pancakes up in heaven. And he's like turning around like, whoa, okay, what? What are you guys doing? I didn't realize that's like, uh, what? Friends, that's not how it works. Genesis 1.28 says, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Chapter 2.25, and both the man and his wife, they were naked and they felt no shame. And God goes on to say that it's not just good like the other six days. It's very good. It's very good. So the Bible presents sex as this profound union between two souls. It's not just physical connection. It's not just appetite like people would say. No, this is the mingling of souls on the deepest level of emotion, of spirituality, of finances, of commitment, of everything bound together in two people. And so sex is God's idea, friends. It's not ours. It's not like God was like, well, okay, begrudgingly, he's like, fine, if you have to, but, you know, I'll just turn my back or something like that. No, he says, not only have I given this as a means of reproduction, I've made it enjoyable. I've made it good. I've made this as something that I say is very good. So what am I saying? I'm saying on God's terms, because it's such a deep mingling of souls, God says it has to be in the covenant commitment of marriage. I'm not saying this as a stereotype. It's just how it turns out statistically most of the time. So I'm going to say, ladies, listen to C.S. Lewis when he says, if a guy says, I want to have your body, but not you in commitment, what is he saying? He's saying, I want of you, but I don't want you. You can be, you can be dating for 11 years. You can, be, you can be engaged for 10 years. And he loves me. We're going we gonna, to we go, we get married one day. Okay. 
then tell them, listen, until we, until we get married, let's, let's leave all of this. Let's draw a line in the sand. Let's honor God with our bodies and see how long he sticks around. No, God says it's in the covenant of marriage that this becomes a beautiful and a good thing. There's actually two neurologists, Joe McCaney, I think you pronounce his surname, and Freda McKissick. they secular people, not Christians, but they wrote this book called Hooked. And in it, it's a scientific study, an assimilation of a bunch of studies, actually, where they show that if, especially the earlier in your life it is, the younger you are, they say that serial kind of, you know, jumping from bed to bed, having multiple sexual partners, it actually rewires your brain, the neuroplasticity of your brain, to such an extent that later in life, in your mid-20s and mid-30s, you experience such difficulty in terms of intimate connection with people emotionally, I can no longer connect with people because I've rewired my brain to experience sex as a good to be swapped out versus something that I commit to. I don't want of you, I want the whole of you. And I will not take of you until I've taken all of you and given all of myself. No back doors, no I promise, no I will give myself to you. We know this, friends, it's like an instinct. As much as sexual liberation is this great thing, Paul and I were speaking about the other day. There's this article that a lady from Wired wrote, and she was saying it's just, it was almost this wrestling with, listen, we have, we have gotten all the liberation that we wanted as women. We can be like the men, a bunch of hound dogs, basically, right? And she says she goes onto Tinder, and she has this date. They end up in bed together, and right at the end of them coming together, she says she's not even put her clothes back on. This guy is sitting at the end of the bed, and he's got Tinder open again. And he's ready to connect with some other lady. And she sits here, and she's not writing from a Christian perspective. As someone who's secular, she's saying, something is saying to me that there's something not right here. I can't put my finger on it. And the Bible says, why? Because this is meant for intimate connection in the covenant of marriage. So why am I saying this? Because Jesus comes to this lady, and he says to her, you know what? I want to I say to you that I see that you have been going to the wells in your life of sex and intimacy. And I see that you have gone to those wells repeatedly. And I want to tell you today that you will go to them to your death and you will not find what you're looking for because you don't need natural water. You need living water. Your soul is actually crying out for something and you won't find it where you think you are going to find it. And maybe we don't find it shocking. The water metaphor kind of goes over our heads because we've never lived in an arid society like Jesus grew up in. I mean, you, we go for like half an hour without water, and it's like, yo, I'm parched. I can't do this. But these people, they understood in desert areas where people genuinely, I don't know how many of us have come to the place of near-death thirst. So there's a scientist, Jeffrey Burns. He writes on this issue of dehydration. Just listen to this. He says, when dehydration becomes severe, cells throughout the body begin to shrink as part of the body's efforts to keep the organs Perfuse. And he says the ones that really count are the brain cells because they don't operate normally when they are shrinking. Uh, confusion, delirium, hallucinations begin to follow. And as the brain becomes smaller, it takes up less room in the skull and blood vessels connecting it to the inside of the cranium. They start pulling away and rupturing. And as vi a victim's kidneys begin to shut down, waste products that should be eliminated from the body will now have this poisonous remain. And without water, the blood volume will decline further and further, and the rest of the organs will start to fail, leading to disastrous consequences and ultimately death. That is near-death thirst. And Jesus has the audacity to say, 
your soul is in need of something deeper than your body is in need of water. He says, you are in need of something even more than what you actually think your body needs. As every cell in your body cries out for water, he says, every fiber of your soul is crying out for acceptance, identity, and comfort. He has the audacity to say, the water that I will give you will not just make you feel better, but it will become a spring of eternal water in you. This is the promise. This is the promise. What is he saying? He's saying that for us as human beings, we try and satisfy, we try and bring coherence and wholeness to our life by doing what? By going outside of ourselves. I go to the place of my career. I go to the place of hearing my father say, I love you. I go to the place of proving my, my siblings wrong, that I'm not a bum. I go to the place of trying to get the perfect body or trying to climb the corporate ladder or living in the right neighborhood or driving the right car or getting overseas because South Africa is a dump or whatever it is. We go outside of ourselves. If I can just live there, breathe there, if I can just have her next to my side, if I can just get this degree, if I can just beat that guy out of my office, then I will have something that speaks to my identity. I have to go outside of myself. But here's the issue with those things. What happens when the marriage you've built your identity on blows up? What happens when the health that you've so finely combed gives way? What happens when you are retrenched because of the economy? And that thing that gave you status amongst your peers at school, you walk with, a, with an out chest at school because I'm that guy. Now that's gone. And guess what? Life might not just happen. It does happen. We realize how fragile the wells are that we go to. Suddenly it's dried up and that thing that used to give me a sense of identity and purpose, I go to it and it's sludge. It's nothing. Jesus has the audacity to say in verse 13, everyone who drinks from this water, the water of career, the water of sex and intimacy, the water of friends, the water of my kids and how I, how I raise them, he says, you will get thirsty again. These are good things, but they're not God things. But whoever drinks from the water that I give them will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I give them will become like a well of water springing up for eternal life. Friends, the picture is if you've ever seen a water fountain just like at full blast, just erupting. He's saying you can put so much junk into that, into that fountain, but the water will just seep through again. He's saying you can fill it with as much junk as you want. Life can happen to you as much as it wants. When cancer hits, when my marriage explodes, when my kids make the decisions that I didn't think they would make, when I'm retrenched, all the junk can be thrown into that fountain, but the water will find its way through. Jesus says, I can give you a kind of life, a kind of acceptance, a kind of love, a kind of identity, a kind of worth that is so steadfast that nothing can rob you of it. You'll go to those wells and they will dry up and disappoint you. But if I am on the inside, if I am the basis of your identity and your worth, he says, let the junk come. Let life happen you will have something in you that cannot be conquered. Lastly, he just says this. Sex and intimacy can never address your deepest needs. Sex and intimacy, man, good thing. In fact, God says very good thing. But he says it can never address your deepest needs. I love Josh McDowell. He says sex is not the answer. Sex is actually an expression of the question. Our culture thinks that sex and sexual pleasure and intimacy, that's the answer. No, he says no. That is actually a question that your soul is asking. The answer is found somewhere else. 
So what is Jesus saying? He's not changing the subject when he speaks about her husband. He says, go and get your husband. (laughs) He's not changing the subject. What is he doing? He's sensing that her answer is, I don't have spiritual thirst. I'm starting to get what you're saying with this metaphor. I don't have that. I'm fine. And he says, okay, then go and fetch your husband. And suddenly, oh, wow. Okay, I thought we were speaking about like theological stuff, you know, Mount Gerasim and the worship. And he's like, no, go and fetch your husband. And then suddenly, all the walls come down. Maybe you sit here today and you, you tell me, Joe, listen, I get it. I've been in church for a long time. I've done this Christian thing. I don't have spiritual thirst. Maybe Jesus says to you, okay, then go and fetch. Go and fetch your career. Go and fetch that one thing. If, if that is challenged in your life, you fall apart. Go and fetch the health of your kids. Go and fetch the fact that you live in comfort. Go and fetch that. What am I truly worshiping? Because Jesus says, all of us are already going to a well. All of us. There's not a single person in the city, spiritual, religious, agnostic, atheist, Buddhist, Muslim. Everyone is going to a well of some sort. The question is just, is it an eternal well or is it one of just a bunch of good things? Because we have the capacity to take good things like sex and intimacy, like career, like status, like kids. We have the capacity to take good wells and turn them into God things that disappoint and destroy us. I don't have that issue, but then go and fetch. Go and bring that one thing that reveals where you actually are. See, it's only when I'm willing to admit the deficiency of my, of my idols that I can come before God and say, God, come and free me. Come and release me. I don't want to start going to church and just be a good person and dress better and swear less. And I want to experience living water. I'm done with playing around in the sludge. I want living water. So just in closing, it's so strange. In verse 9 and at the end again, everyone is surprised for some reason. Verse 9, this lady is like, why are you talking to me? This is so weird. And at the end, the, the, the disciples come back, verse 28, and they're surprised. So why is everyone so surprised? And it's for a couple of reasons. One is that Jesus is crossing every cultural and social and moral barrier to speak to this woman. It's scandalous. It would have been in the Heisgenoot if they were around. Jesus speaks to Samaritan. What happens next? Clickbait title. If you watch this video, you won't believe what Jesus does next. Why was it? Because he is a man, and in a time where women had no standing socially, he's speaking to a woman. He's a rabbi, and she is a Samaritan. He's crossing all these uncrossable barriers of culture, race, ethnicity to come and speak to this woman. He has a divine appointment to her, but there's even one deeper thing. You see, why is this lady coming to this well at this time of the day? You see, This is not just to come and fetch a drink. It's like at the gym, this little water fountain, and you go on again. This was incredibly arduous work. You had to wash, cook, clean everything with the water that you go and fetch once a day. So it was a hectic, like, you know, exercise. And they would go as a group of women together, either early in the morning or late in the evening when the sun is not scorching. But here this woman is alone, and she's in the hottest time of the day at this well. Why? Because she was a social outcast. No one wanted to go with her. She could not go when the rest were going. Why? Because they saw her as filthy, as dirty. You're a heretic. You're a pagan. You're an adulteress. 
you have squandered your life. You are the very last person that will earn the love of God. Her past and her decisions had so defined her present and destroyed her future that she had become a social outcast amongst her own people. But what does Jesus come to do? He comes and he breaks down every single one of those barriers. Why? Every single time in the life of Jesus, you see him reaching out to the undeserving, the unwanted, the unfavored, the unlikely. Why? Because he wants to show us that the grace of God is not something you earn, something you achieve, something you win, something you work to. It is a grace that's given to those who receive it humbly. It's given to the unlovely. It's given to the broken. It's given to those who admit, I don't have it together. Yes, I have gone back to those wells and shame my whole life. Jesus, rescue me. Don't just conduct me and help me and assist me. I don't want a PA. I want a Savior and a Lord. Jesus comes to show us, Ephesians 2.8, for you are saved by grace through faith. Faith means I go and sit in a chair because my relationship to that chair is I trust that it will hold me. What is your relationship to Jesus? Is it one of trust in what he has done and will do? Because grace is not something we go out and we find. It's something that comes to find us. Jesus did not go to that well that day to get water. He went there to give it. And I believe here today, God wants to so generously and gently and yet directly come and ask you, go and fetch, come and lay down and let me be living water for you. And friends, know this, that every single person around you who does not yet know Jesus, friend, colleague, family member, this is their story. I don't know your well. You don't know all my wells. I don't know all of their wells. But Jesus does. And he wants to come and free them and give them living water. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, I pray simply today that we would have the vulnerability, God, to bring our worlds before you. I just specifically pray, God, for Christians who've known you for so many years, who've gotten so used to giving the right answers, to pretending, to deal in the superficial, God, that they would let you into deeper levels of their life. God, will you come and make us the kind of church that in community can address, can wrestle through? We're not afraid to go through the deep issues of our lives, God. And I pray for anyone here today, especially on this, this, this topic of sex and intimacy, God. People who feel I'm dirty, I'm too far gone, I've made too many bad decisions. I'm an outcast. That they would just be found by the one who is living water today. May we just give over, Jesus. May we just love you because you have loved us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said... Amen.